Hello. You have discovered the Felon File. Felonfile.com is a podcast exploration and discussion of law enforcement, history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere. Felon File is hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, sergeant, author and researcher. The Shade of Blue Stories for Felon File today. September 28, 1900. North Carolina. One murder. The defendant hung twice. Background and intro theme provided by purpleplanet.com. Scott. Your microphone is on. Welcome. Welcome back to another episode of Felon File, where we look at law enforcement issues, crime and punishment, uh, the good guys, the bad guys, the unusual situations involving crime and court and law enforcement, and anything else that I might find of interest that I kind of hope you guys find interesting too. Thank you, Victoria, for opening us up and starting the show for us. Victoria is running the control board again for us once more. We do appreciate everything she does. And as Victoria said, I am your host, Scott Lunsford, a retired police detective, sergeant, patrol officer, and currently working as campus police officer and school resource officer in the western part of the state of North Carolina. Now, working as a school resource officer, my students are generally amazed that, as old as I am, and watch the replies to that, I still go to school. In North Carolina, like most states, law enforcement officers have regular training in law updates, changes in the law, new developments in law enforcement, regular qualifications on the tools of the trade, Uh, things along those lines that we have to go to in order to keep our certification up to make us hopefully a more professional profession. To help with this education, North Carolina created, back in 1973, the North Carolina Justice Academy. The Academy is part of the North Carolina Department of Justice. It provides training programs for criminal justice personnel, technical assistance, and library and research material. The Academy's Eastern Campus site is in Salemburg, North Carolina, very close to the exact center of the state. The campus has been affiliated with education going back to the 1870s, really. Originally known as Salem Academy, It evolved from that into the Penland School for Girls, to Penland Junior College, to Edwards Military Institute, a military school, then to a location in the early 70s called Southwood College, and that evolved into its present-day teaching location for police and law enforcement. Now, over the years, Salemburg has updated itself with new classrooms, buildings, learning resource centers, dormitories, and administration buildings, state-of-the-art gymnasiums, and other really cool things. Indoor ranges, outdoor ranges, a driving track, and so on. 
the state realized there was a need for another uh, facility for training. Not only one that handles the entire state, but one more centralized to the western part of the state, western North Carolina. And they opened a campus for the Justice Academy in Edneyville. And in 2004, it was named the Larry T. Justice Western Justice Academy in honor of Representative Larry T. Justice. And it is in Edneyville, which is located outside of Hendersonville, North Carolina. And it's located at the former site of the Edneyville High School Complex. Now, as I said, the first campus that was established in 73 is located in Salemburg, North Carolina, or Sampson County. I spent quite a bit of time there at that particular Justice Academy and that, that campus. And if you're ever there, there's a little restaurant not too far away within walking distance that is absolutely fantastic. Anyway. It's a rural, mostly quiet farming community, Sampson County is. But like most of the Shade of Blue stories we discuss, it does have its own history of crime and punishment. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Archie Tate Kinsalls. He was born in 1865 during the Reconstruction era of the state. That year, North Carolina ratified the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. And if you're not familiar with that, that's the one that abolished slavery. A very important amendment. He was the son of Ensley and Martha of Bearskin Swamp Community there in Sampson County near Salemburg. He was married in 1896 to a local girl, a Gypsy Bass was the young lady's name. Now growing up in a hard-working farming community and on a an actual working farm made for a very tough individual. Although Archie was known to be small of stature and even as an adult only weighed about 110 pounds, growing up his neighbors described him as tough as nails. He had a reputation of being able to fight like a wildcat. A lot of people were afraid of Archie for that simple reason and for the reason that he liked to fight and he liked to argue and fight over his point of view. Now, he did have an unfortunate habit of getting into violent arguments and carried a, a long-running feud with one of his neighbors, a John C. Herring. Uh, one night, Consals was in Art Van's store at Beeman's Crossroads, not too far away from where the campus is today. An argument began and then a fight broke out. Newspapers reported that Ken Sauce reached into the meat locker or the meat cooler and pulled out a, a very sharp butcher's knife and in the process of the argument ended up stabbing the young man Herring to such an extent that he died that very night. Now looking at a review of court testimony and the North Carolina Supreme Court notes that are available at the North Carolina State Archives. Evidence presented said that he had brought the knife with him that night. Now this backed up the state's theory of premeditation for the killing and helped get him convicted. 
Was it a killing of opportunity or was it something planned? The state seemed to think, and apparently the jury did too, that it was a planned premeditation situation. Now, Kinsalls did not leave the area and was arrested just a few days after the homicide and placed in the county jail in Clinton, North Carolina. Now, his wife was expecting at the time. Archie, while he was incarcerated, became a father to a baby boy. Archie Kinsalis Jr. After his son was born, wanting to check on his wife and see his new child, he inquired about the possibility from the jailer and the sheriff of being allowed to go home under armed escort for a short period of time or a short visit to check on his family, but the request was refused. When word of the refusal made its rounds through the community, a group of Kinsol's friends went to the home of the chief jailer in the middle of the night and insisted, after a brief conversation, that he accompany them back to the jail and release Archie. At first, the jailer was unsympathetic entirely until it was pointed out that it was a matter of life and death. It was not the prisoner's life and death they were talking about, but the chief jailer's life and death. After securing the keys to the jail, as well as the jailer, Archie's friends marched on the jail and freed him from the jail in the middle of the night, and Archie went home. Now, many men would have attempted to place as much distance between himself and Sampson County to avoid recapture, but Archie just went home and was able to do so and stay away and was not arrested for about nine months. Coming and going as he pleased, this kind of gave the sheriff and the county a black eye and so much as unable to recapture Archie. Finally, after setting up surveillance and putting a couple of deputies to working on catching Archie full-time, the deputies were waiting and watching Archie's place and they observed Archie come out of his house and walk to his barn. Now, while he was in the barn working, word was sent to the sheriff who grabbed as many men as he possibly can some documents say about 25, and they planned to converge on the farm that Archie owned. Now, Archie had made it a habit since his escape to always go about with a Winchester rifle and a pistol. Now, the sheriff accompanied the posse, and they finally were in a position they thought they could take Archie back into custody. Now, Archie wouldn't go without a fight, though. The sheriff and the posse only recaptured him after a massive exchange of gunfire at the farm. And when the smoke cleared, Archie was severely wounded. After being taken into custody, doctors removed over 20 pieces of buckshot from Archie's body. Though they thought he wouldn't make it, he did recover and was able to be brought into trial in October 1899 a little over a year after the homicide occurred. Now at the trial, he was defended by John Kerr and a John Fowler, as well as a attorney by the name of Cooper, all of them from Clinton, North Carolina. The prosecutor was Major George E. Butler and Henry Faison, 
also of Clinton. After all the evidence and testimony was given, the local jury there in Clinton found him guilty of murder. And Judge Byron sentenced him to be hung on November 29, 1899. Many newspaper reports and documentations that have been written way after the fact state that Archie was the last man to be hung in Sampson County. Now, according to records there on file in Sampson County and in the state archives, that wasn't true. An 18-year-old man by the name of Moore was executed by hanging in April 1905 for a sexual assault and rape of a young girl by the last name of Brewington. But this hanging was observed privately by only about 25 people who were issued formal passes in order to get to see it. Uh, the Atlanta Journal reported this execution in the September 4th, 1905 edition of their paper. Now, Archie's hanging might have been the last legal public hanging to have occurred in Sampson County, but it was not the last hanging. Now, waiting for his date with the hangman, Consols complained that he couldn't sleep, and the attending doctor for the jail gave him some sleeping pills. Uh, the day before he was to be hung, the jailer approached him in his cell, and he was unresponsive. After shaking him a bit and getting a little bit of consciousness out of him, Archie admitted to overdosing and taking about 14 morphine tablets at one time that particular morning, about 1 o'clock, 1.15 in the morning. And he claimed that he had brought them from Wilmington with him, and he also had a pocket knife in his pocket. A search of Archie and the cell located the pocket knife, but no more medication. A doctor was called back and he confirmed that he had given the medication to Archie. He didn't bring it front with him from Wilmington and he had left it with the prisoner. Once the doctor arrived, they were able to get Archie to recover somewhat from the overdose. The execution for the next morning was postponed and another date was set. Well, on that day, he attempted suicide by cutting his throat with a tin can lid that he had somebody smuggle into him. Well, he did a number on his neck in trying to slice his jugular. The doctors were called and they were able to sew his neck up and stop the bleeding. And he did recover from this second attempt at a suicide and another date of September 28th of 1900 was established for his execution. Now, Governor Daniel Russell received many requests from several influential men from Sampson County for a reprieve. Kinsel was a very popular individual at times and, and was also politically connected to a lot of the movers and shakers from that part of the state. Although they asked, the governor refused. Kinsall's wife even made a trip to Raleigh to meet with the governor, requesting that his punishment at the very, very least 
be reduced to life in prison instead of the death sentence. And the governor would meet with the wife and on the day of the hanging, literally hundreds of people from all over the country and county came in to watch. In the meantime, North Carolina Governor Daniel Russell received a bunch of more requests for reprieve, all that he ignored or refused to follow through with. According to a report at the North Carolina State Archives, militia troops were called out to assist the sheriff with, with crowd control that day and to ensure another attempt at an escape wouldn't be tried. To quote from the report, troops were ordered to Sampson County to attend with their company, armed and equipped according to the law, and report to the execution of Archie Kinsalls on Friday next. As soon as you have performed such duties as the sheriff may request of you, you are to return and notify the state of your activities. Those were the orders that the governor sent down. Now, on several occasions, weapons had been smuggled into the jail, sometimes in an attempt to aid Archie in an escape. This included several knives, like we had spoken about earlier, and even a pistol was smuggled into him. A fully loaded small revolver. The attempts were made in vain for the most part. At one time, Archie was handed an axe through the window in his cell while the jailer was out on a meal break. He attempted to bust through one of the walls in his cell and even went so far as to almost remove the window entirely from the wall before he was caught and stopped. Later, before he was executed, he had been moved to a jail in an adjoining county. The jailer from his previous stay in Sampson County was, like I said, brought on criminal charges here after a grand jury hearing charging him with helping the prisoner escape by providing the key or the keys to the jail to his friends. Kinsall was brought back twice to Sampson County to testify in the criminal hearing for the jailer, who was later found not guilty after testimony from observers who saw the crowd who had marched on his house and forced him to turn over the jail keys and take him to take them to the jail in order for Archie to escape. In another attempt at an escape, Archie had starved himself by not eating anything, hoping to be transported to a doctor or a hospital where he figured he had better odds of escaping from. Well, this didn't work either. He was treated at the jail and basically kept alive. Now on the day of the hanging, individuals came in wagons, buggies, some of them were walking, they rode horses, whatever they could find to get there. The gallows were erected near the present day jail, which was not too far away from the courthouse at that time. Hanging had been the primary method of execution in the United States since the founding of the American colonies. It was inexpensive. It was a low-tech way of putting people to death. And hanging could be handled on the local level, and it didn't require a lot of elaborate execution protocols. But 
Mr. Kinsall refused to go quietly. As in all of his previous executions, Sampson County used a stepladder as its gallows, but in this instance it failed to do the job. A noose was put over a tree limb and the ladder was placed underneath it and he was ordered or forced off the ladder. This time the height was not sufficient and because of this and his light weight, 110 pounds at that time, even probably less since he tried to starve himself to death, his neck was not broken. Compounding the problem was the fact that his neck had only partially healed, remember he tried to cut his throat, from his last suicide attempt. As a result, when he fell from the stepladder, the rope tore open his neck wound and left him bleeding very profusely, creating a very large mess. Now the crowd went crazy, was about to riot, militia had to step in to calm things down. The attending physician, who was supposed to just determine whether he was dead or alive, determined that he was still alive. After the doctors worked on him and he was, he was brought back into a semblance of consciousness where he could function enough to walk, the executioners forced him back up the ladder again, making some final adjustments on the drop height and the rope itself after which, when he fell this time, it was more effective. Now, because of his previous injuries, the scene was actually quite bloody. Many people fainted. There was an uproar in the crowd over the hanging. Many of the observers in the crowd who felt, who felt that the hanging was justified suddenly changed their perspective when it came to hanging the man twice. A common consensus was if you didn't get it right on the first time, it wasn't meant to be. Now, newspapers all over the country took note of Kinsel's execution and the problems they had. Headlines in the Atlanta Constitution, the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, the Republic in St. Louis, Missouri, they all announced that it had not gone as planned. Uh, for example, the Washington Post titled its article, Murderer Hanged Twice. The stories in turn used very vivid language to convey the horror of his last minutes on it. The Post described a, quote, ghastly gallows scene, and the Virginia pilot called it a thoroughly revolting execution. Now, the story of Kinsel's botched execution is really not that unique. In fact, it was botched executions were pretty common. However, the opinion held by many public officials was in many ways apathetic and raised the question, why should the state care about the suffering of those it puts to death? Painful death might be more just and more effective as a deterrent than a death that is quick, quiet, and tranquil. Because justice would seem to demand equivalence between pain inflicted in the crime and the pain experienced as part of the punishment, there is something unsettling and paradoxical about the state's constant search for a painless way of killing those who kill. It's an interesting way of looking at it, but 
We all know two wrongs don't make a right. Now, do the dead walk? Well, depends on the zombie movie you're watching, I guess. You might say the more famous you are, the harder you are to kill. An example, uh, John Wilkes Booth. He was allegedly seen out west after his death in the barn that he burned up in that was set on fire by Union troops. And then, of course, where would the National Enquirer be unless people hadn't seen Elvis Presley after his death working in various convenience stores throughout the United States and other places of employment after his death? There are prisoners in the Wake County Jail in Raleigh who, who also answer this question in the positive. They have seen executed prisoner Tom Jones, who paid the death penalty previously for the murder of a family of six, and many who have heard and claim to have heard him talk in the middle of his midnight strolls. So those that are more of ghost issues and spirit issues, I guess. And now comes the news that Archie the Sampson County murderer, who was hung twice, that he cheated the hangman. Newspaper articles reported that he was in the city of Richmond, Virginia. This information get, was given and published in the Fayetteville Observer as, as follows. A startling and exceedingly sensational report comes from Clinton, North Carolina. We learned today that one of Clinton's most most prominent lawyers says that it is a current rumor and readily believed that Archie Kinsalls, who was hanged at Clinton last Friday, is still alive. It is well known that Kinsalls, after the hanging, which lasted on the gallows, he was on, he was hanging for 14 minutes, and that he himself requested to be dropped again but that this was done by order of the physicians and that the second drop tore loose the wounds, which we talked about, and made his neck uh, a bleeding mess, where he had made an attempt to commit suicide the day before. The story was reported that when Archie was taken home, his body was wrapped in wet blankets and resuscitated and was at once sent to Richmond where he was now under treatment and care of a doctor specializing apparently in resurrection. Since the above was put into type, it is reported that Ken Sauls is making a supreme effort to regain his strength in order to return to Sampson County and repay his respects to the populous sheriff. Do the dead walk? This question promises to become as prominent as perplexing problems such as, does an nanny goat have a horn? And when are puppies no longer puppies and they become a dog? That's how they wrote it up. Another article reports that the hangman got in his work at Clinton and Tarboro that day. At Clinton, of course, Archie paid the penalty for the murder that he committed in 1998. And in Tarboro, 
on the same day and at the same time, Chauncey Davis was also hung for the burning of a residence on May 8, 1899. That was published in the Progressive Farmer, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, on October 2nd, 1900. Now, the story of Archie Kinsall's The Man Who Had to Be Hanged Twice is really not for the faint of heart. And did he survive the hanging? Well, it was very, if you go back and uh, reread newspapers and look at other documentation and stories and of hangings and the after effects of them, it's not uncommon to find where the person that was hung were executed, as the case may be, is not, or is seen afterwards. There's the story of one gentleman who was being taken home from the gallows by his family when he sat up in his coffin and started beating on it, trying to get out. Uh, just so happened that there was a couple of deputies that were riding with the family to get home because of fear of some desecration of the body. And when they saw that the person that was hung supposedly was still alive they transported him to the closest house and notified the sheriff when they when the sheriff arrived though the man had passed away but apparently he was still alive when he went into the box because he actually spoke to one of the doctors who attended to him and, try, and tried to bring him around now that's our shade of blue story for today. The man that was hung twice. And did he die? Or was he resurrected and treated in Richmond, Virginia in 1900? What do you think? Well, be sure to come back next week for another episode of Felon File. And if you'd like to drop us a line, we'd love to hear from you, Victoria and myself. You can reach us by email at felonfile at gmail.com or you can hit one of the links on our webpage felonfile.com or scottlunsfordauthor.com there's some links to my books and some other things that you might find of interest are if you're listening to us on saturday night we hope that your next week is going to be we hope that your upcoming week will be very good and profitable and if it can't be monetarily profitable I hope that it is emotionally profitable for you. So, Victoria, go ahead and close us out. We'll talk to you guys later. Bye, y'all. You have been listening to The Felon File Podcast with your host, Scott Lunsford. For more information on this podcast or Scott's books and writings, go to scottlunsfordauthor.com and felonfile.com. Scott can also be contacted at these websites. Be sure to check out the stuff page on the website. Pick up a Felon File t-shirt or coffee mug. You can also support the Felon File podcast by buying us a coffee from the link on the website. This is Victoria your producer. Thank you for listening.